It was a cold early morning, just after sunrise on January 31st, 1906, when a crowd assembled at the train station in North Sydney in Cape Breton. Reporters from the Sydney Record and the Sydney Daily Post stood amidst the small crowd. They described the mood as anxious and compared the feeling to a ship setting off to parts unknown. The man the crowd were there to see was setting off to become the first person to walk all the way across Canada. And he was doing so because of a bet. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. The man starting to walk down the train tracks alone was a 22-year-old with dark hair and piercing eyes who stood six foot four. He was a renowned runner, and he had set athletic records all over Cape Breton, and he was walking down the railroad tracks because of a bet. There had been an argument at Sydney's Empire Hall over whether the popular local young athlete John Hugh Gillies could walk all the way across Canada and then onwards to San Francisco, and back in one year. Local musician and storyteller George Cummings was also involved in the argument, claiming that Gillies could do it, and even volunteered to accompany Gillies on the epic walk. When money was pooled amongst those present, the matter became more serious, and a remarkable sum of $600 for each of the walkers was put on the line and then the matter became serious. $600 was the annual salary of a highly skilled tradesman of the time. North Sydney was known as a betting town. The bet quickly developed into clear rules, which actually seemed strikingly draconian. The men had to walk all the way to San Francisco and back within one year, they would have to leave with no money at all, and they had to return with $200 in their pockets each Achilles had a hand in writing these rules himself, which suggests that he didn't exactly know what he was getting himself into. The young men had never done long-distance walking, and Gilly's speech at his farewell dinner the night before he left suggested that he was overly optimistic about how it would go. He declared to the assembled crowd that he would walk 22 and a half miles every day. Everyone laughed at him. His traveling companion, George Cummings was 10 years older than him and a full foot shorter. He's a renowned musician and a storyteller, but aside from being a figure skater in his youth, was not particularly athletic. That cold morning at the train station, as the crowd assembled, George Cummings didn't show up. Gillies began walking alone down the railroad tracks in the cold. He had with him sweaters, stockings, leggings, boots, a red voyageur hat, and a military haversack. Completely on a whim, a 5'4", 21-year-old boxer, acrobat, and tightrope walker who had just started a job at the local gym named Jack McDonald spontaneously decided to go along with Gillies, and the two walked off together down the train tracks. Several hours later, Cummings showed up at the train station, scurrying down the tracks possibly hung over from the departure night the night before. 
He caught up later on that evening, and the three men stayed over at a friend's place that night. The following day was bitterly cold, with the February winds cutting across the railroad tracks, which they would follow all the way across the country. Jack McDonald, who had gone along on a whim, was wearing just a sweater. On that second day, a friend of his hopped off of a passing train and relayed a message from Jack McDonald's understandably annoyed wife that he was to return home at once. He refused, and the friend gave McDonald a care package of warm clothes and food that his wife had prepared for him, presumably anticipating his stubborn refusal to return. In 1906, Cape Breton wasn't yet the industrial powerhouse that it would very soon become. One of the main languages spoken was still Gaelic, which Gillies could speak, but the other two could not. And the three walkers were popular in Cape Breton and were invited to dinners and even dances as they crossed the island. After a stormy boat trip to mainland Nova Scotia, they made their way to Anaganish, where they met the local mayor who signed papers saying that they had indeed made it there. In each town they went, they tracked down the local mayor and got a card signed saying that they'd been there as proof for the bet. The mayor of Anaganish suggested that they finance their trip by selling a brand new invention, which was then in very high demand. Pencils. Lead pencils were popular, they were replacing the old slate pencils, and a good amount of money could be made by selling this high demand item. And that's how they funded their trip across Canada, by selling pencils. The next day, in rural Nova Scotia, a massive blizzard, their first winter storm, swept over them, and they lost the train tracks they were following and wandered aimlessly, lost in the snow. Fortunately, they found a house and a kindly farmer took them in until the blizzard stopped, which, as it turned out, took two days. As they walked through Oxford, the temperature hit 40 below zero. When they made it to Moncton in New Brunswick, a crowd awaited them. Telegraph lines and newspaper reports allowed the public to keep a remarkably close tab on the walkers' progress. The public across the country knew where and when the men were. As their fame was increasing, as they walked further across the country, the men decided to sell autographed photos of themselves to make more money. The Moncton Transcript newspaper reported that they had walked 39 miles that day. That reporter wrote that Cummings sang to the assembled crowd in Moncton, and the newspaper published its lyrics. Cold winds are sweeping, the hillsides white with snow, and the sad grey skies are weeping, as on and on we go. Cease, poor skies, your sorrow, for out of the chill and gloom, in the smile of another morning, we'll be back to see you soon. The Moncton Times reported that they caused considerable fuss among churchgoers that Sunday because they got photographed by a Moncton studio on the Sabbath, which apparently was a real faux pas back then. They walked to St. John in two and a half days. At the time, the port city had a not always friendly rivalry with Halifax as the commercial capital of the Maritimes. Evidently, the city was indeed busy, as it took them two days in St. John to track down the mayor to get their cards signed. In the meantime, according to a front-page story in the St. John Evening Times, 
They sat up outside the city market selling pencils and autograph photos of themselves. The reporter noted, aghast, that they carry little or no luggage. After St. John, the walk grew more difficult. They slept in the snow the next night in Wellsford, and another night on the steps outside of the train station in Fredericton Junction. When they made it to the little town of McAdam, they were astonished at the opulence of a brand new Canadian Pacific station and its adjacent hotel, which had only been built five years before. The poor Cape Bretoners couldn't afford to stay in such a place. They explained their story to the hotel's manager, who was intrigued by their adventure, and allowed them to stay in the staff quarters. From there, they followed the tracks down to Forest City, which was a curious, then booming little mill town, which sat half on the Canadian side and half on the American side of the border. When they passed through it, it was home to 2,000 people, but today Forest City is a completely abandoned ghost town. From there, they walked through Maine, and then they went through Quebec, and despite being caught in several snowstorms, they made it to what was then, by far, Canada's largest city, Montreal. There, they took a break to rest their feet, and spent several days taking in a whirlwind of sights that were mind-blowing to the Cape Bretoners. They saw The Great Train Robbery, which was the world's first full-length film. The review of the film, which was published in the newspapers back in Cape Breton, was pretty simple. They sure packed a lot into 10 minutes, was all they had to say about the experience. They were invited to see the Stanley Cup Finals, hockey game played by the Montreal Wanderers versus the Ottawa Hockey Club, which Ottawa won 9-3. There were more people in attendance at that game than lived in their hometown. Next, they were a guest of the mayor to watch Montreal's famous St. Patrick's Day parade. The lure of the big city was too much for George Cummings and Jack McDonald. The Sydney newspapers wrote that they decided to stay in Montreal. Social life in Montreal proved too tempting and some of them yield to seductiveness, screamed the indignant headline of the Sydney Daily Post. The reality was there'd been a personality clash between the quiet and religious athlete, John Gillies, and the nightlife-loving musician and boxer. Also, more practically speaking, Cummings and McDonald were very short, and Gillies was very tall. He was a foot taller than them. That meant that he was walking much faster with his longer legs, and that had been a persistent source of tension since the very first day they started walking. Because of their feud over personality and walking speed, they ended up splitting ways, and Gillies continued along following the Canadian Railroad tracks. Contrary to what the newspapers wrote, Cummings and MacDonald had not quit the walk, but instead they continued on a more direct route to San Francisco, going through southern Ontario and then along the Great Lakes. When the duo who were following the American route reached Chicago, they learned some shocking news. San Francisco had been completely destroyed in one of the deadliest earthquakes in human history. So they turned around and they began walking back home to Cape Breton. John Gillies though, now alone, continued walking through Canada, seemingly unfazed by the news that his destination being destroyed in an earthquake. He kept on walking. However, by then a new walker was trying to catch up with him. Charles Jackman was a 28-year-old competitive Englishman and a lacrosse player 
who lived in Halifax and worked there as a photographer. He had heard about the walk across Canada in the papers, and he decided that he wanted to do the trip too. And he set off, determined to pass Gillies and become the first person to walk across the country. Charles Jackman was from a relatively wealthy family, and he was somewhat more worldly than the Cape Bretoners. And he was also better at self-promotion. He talked his way into a contract with the Toronto Star newspaper to write about his experiences walking across Canada to pay his way, which is probably easier than selling pencils outside of markets. Charles Jackman recorded a diary of his trip in a journal in which he complains about everything at length, for the most part, and he also brought his camera with him. He took over 250 photographs of Canada as he walked across it. Jackman wrote in his diary about Gillies. I'd very much love to get ahead of him, but he has three weeks head start on me. However, John Gillies' feet were damaged from his running career and were steadily deteriorating, likely because of his boots. He was wearing standard workman's boots. And these had thick, flat soles on them, which did not move with the feet. They didn't bend at all. So these boots were durable, and so means you didn't, as a workman, have to replace them. But they were also very bad for feet. Also, they're completely flat on the bottom. There's no grips or treads on them at all. And this is what this guy is walking across the country wearing. As Gillies was passing through Western Ontario, there were fewer and fewer people and more and more open spaces. In Sudbury, a thief stole the photographs that Gillies had taken in Moncton. Jackman, who was still weeks behind but gaining on Gillies, also had problems in Sudbury. Devilishly lonely walk, and I could scarcely find my way over the tracks in the dark. Glorious northern lights made things a little better, but enabled me to see a bear shambling towards the bush. I didn't follow. On June the 5th, near Raleigh Lake, in the wilderness of western Ontario, Jackman finally caught up with Gillies. He recorded their meeting in his diary. I'm Charles Jackman. I've been trying to catch up to you. To be honest, I thought of passing you, but now, having walked 1,200 miles alone, I'd be glad of your company, if you don't mind. I guess you know that I'm John Gillies from North Sydney, came the reply. I heard you were behind me since Montreal and shortening the distance. I would be glad to share the long stretch ahead with you. The west of Canada was growing at a remarkable rate. Charles Jackman had visited Winnipeg, where his brother lived five years before. And during that time, since he'd last been to the city, the population had doubled to 128,000 people. But even that doesn't really do justice to Winnipeg's growth. The city had a population of only 1,000 people in 1875, which was only 21 years earlier. The two men lost each other for days in the big city of Winnipeg, during which time Gillies rested his feet and Jackman bought some new boots. Wealthier than the Cape Bretoner, due to his family connections, the Englishman could afford fancy boots whose soles actually moved with your feet and they were more expensive, and they were also more prone to wear out, but they were much easier to walk in. Also in Winnipeg, this seemed to be a bit of a theme of Jackman's trip. Jackman didn't have any money, but he would stay in nice hotels. He would promise the hotels that the Toronto Star would pay for his fees. The Toronto Star would frequently be late in paying for his hotel bills, and then he would be scrambling and bickering with them over telegrams to try and get money out of his paper to pay for his hotel bills. 
As they walked further and further west, they had to deal with a hot summer filled with mosquitoes. There were also larger distances and fewer people, which meant much more sleeping rough outdoors. In the prairies, there was no shade, and violent thunderstorms would appear frequently. Hotels were in short supply. It was considered a good night if they could find a haystack to sleep inside of. They also frequently got sick from drinking bad water. However, Charles Jackman's previously sour attitude in his diary improved somewhat now that he had a friend. I was frolicking in the fields and chasing gophers in the prairies, he wrote at one point. Gillies, meanwhile, wrote the Sydney Post a letter saying, the Englishman's companionship has had a wonderful effect for the better on him after so much time traveling alone. Jackman, however, never once mentioned Gillies in any of his articles for the Toronto Star. The hardest part of the trip came next, the Rockies. There were cliffs that were dangerous, the railway tracks were precarious, and the bridges were especially perilous. Despite the difficulties, Jackman was in high spirits, writing in his diary. To go through the Rockies by train is a vast treat and one is impressed by the grandeur of the scenery. But one doesn't realize the glory of it all until one walks through. To look at the mountains for some time and then continue walking makes me feel very much akin to a caterpillar crawling over a tent. When they made it to the last spike, where the railway joining Canada was completed, they were approached by a curious hermit who took them into his cave home to rest. On the South Thompson River, they stayed with Constable W.L. Fernie, who, five months prior, had captured Bill Miner, aka the Grey Fox, a famously polite Canadian railway bandit who inspired the movie they saw in Montreal, The Great Train Robbery. He had been robbing trains all over Western Canada and the Northwestern United States before Constable Fernie ended his career of crime. At Hell's Gate, they encountered a group of 7,000 construction workers building a new section of track. Jackman wrote, aghast. Men were suspended by ropes hundreds of feet below the tops of cliffs to blast a foothold. On Monday, September 24th, at midnight, they walked into Vancouver's railway station. Despite the late hour, a massive crowd of thousands of people were there waiting for them, cheering uproariously. The Vancouver newspapers had been following their progress in great detail, naming John Gillies the Western Giant. Charles Jackman was shown a glass box on display in the station. Inside were the boots he discarded in Winnipeg. John Hugh Gillies was standing in the station, surrounded by people, taking in his accomplishment when a telegram that had just arrived was handed to him. It was from his father. His 12-year-old sister, Teresa, had just died. The next day, a massive parade through the streets of Vancouver was held in honor of the walkers, and a luxurious reception in their honor was hosted by Governor Earl Grey. Within days, Jackman left by train. Gillies, however, was unsure what to do. It was the rainy season, and he didn't really want to walk back. And now San Francisco was gone, so the bet was kind of out of the question. He sent a telegram back to Cape Breton, saying that he regretted that he would not be able to make the bet. He was recruited by the Vancouver Police Force. 
At the time, police forces had robust athletics competitions. And he was given the generous salary of $800 a year, which is substantially more than the bet was worth, to be an athlete for the police force. Over the next year, he made quite the name for himself in the Vancouver Police Force, winning awards in the police games and earning himself a spot on the Canadian Olympic team. In 1910, only one month after his triumph at the police games, and with an illustrious Olympic trip to the 1912 games ahead of him, John Gillies abruptly quit the Vancouver Police Force. He was sick. The doctors diagnosed him with consumption. Tuberculosis is the modern name for the disease, but it was called this because it appears to consume the person until they waste away. They would cough so much that they couldn't eat or sleep, and they would slowly fade away, becoming pale and gaunt and skinny, until they eventually died a slow and painful death. And there was no cure. Today, we kind of laugh about medicines that once contained these powerful drugs in them, like opium or heroin or cocaine, but the reality is that any drug that could get a suffering tuberculosis victim even a few hours of sleep was considered a godsend. The disease was so prevalent at the time that one in seven people died the slow, painful death from it. Gillies would spend the next two years slowly wasting away in a sanatorium in rural British Columbia. Aware that he didn't have much time left, in 1913 he wrote to his brother and his sister that he wanted to go back home to Cape Breton. His siblings took him, now in a wheelchair, on a train across Canada, and he watched from the windows all these places that he'd walked past only a few years before. Back in North Sydney, his father, who was a carpenter, built him a beautiful cabinet, which displayed the many athletic awards that he'd won. Only two weeks after his return home to Cape Breton, his family found him slumped over in front of the cabinet, dead. He was 29 years old. In newspapers across the country he'd walked across, they published heartfelt obituaries of the towering young athlete who achieved fame as the first person to walk across Canada and who had died too soon. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.